1 Timothy chapter 4. I'll read the whole chapter. This is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, the words that you have spoken are spirit and life. The flesh is of no help at all. So help us as we hear your word to find in it the life that you have spoken there. Help us to apply your word to our lives and to our church so that we might honor you with simple, quiet lives of godliness. For we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. I like to uh, jokingly, I mean, it's, it's true, but it's kind of a joke. I like to tell people that the closest I've ever gotten to playing organized sports was Geography Bowl because I'm not uh, the most athletic person in the world, to put it mildly. But based on my imagination and movies I've seen, I suspect that um, what Paul is doing with Timothy here in this letter is something like what coaches do at halftime with their players. Uh, Paul, I imagine, it's kind of through this letter, pulling Timothy alongside himself, helping him, with this struggling church full of many problems, uh, false teaching, people divided, people living in ways that they shouldn't. And Paul is saying through this letter, Timothy, I want to help you. I want to remind you of what we're doing. I want to remind you of what this is all about and what you're supposed to be doing. Here in chapter 4, Paul is zeroing in particularly on what Timothy's supposed to be doing as a pastor. Um, it, in a lot of ways, is. Uh, directly applicable to me and my role, of course, because I'm a pastor, uh, but it actually has all kinds of application for us too, even if you're not a pastor. Um, it helps us 
first of all, to see the ways, if you're a Christian, that you should be praying for your pastors. Uh, it shows us things that pastors are supposed to be doing, things they're not supposed to be doing, uh, where they're supposed to be dedicating their energy and their time. Uh, many of you, Austin's a, a pretty transient city. Many of you are not going to live here for the rest of your lives. Uh, I'm not going to be doing many of your funerals. And so wherever you end up from here, this also helps you to consider what kinds of churches you should be looking for. Uh, where and how will I find a church that's doing the things that the Apostle Paul says that a pastor is supposed to be doing? Uh, if you go away to college, if you move somewhere else, you can keep this stuff in mind uh, because a lot of churches aren't really doing these things or they're only doing about half of them. Um, Timothy, you can see too, if you look down in verse 12, even though Paul is giving him very specific directions about what he's supposed to be doing as a pastor, you can see in verse 12 that the pastor really, and we talked about this last week, is supposed to be an example uh, to all the people in the church. Paul says in verse 12, uh, you're supposed to set for the believers an example. And he goes on and lists all these things. And so even as Paul is talking directly to Timothy and about what he's supposed to be doing as a pastor, uh, it's in a lot of ways applicable to all of us. We're seeing things that all of us are supposed to be doing, things that we can all be working on as we strive to grow in knowing God, in living a life that pleases him, in fulfilling his callings in this world. I see three things here in this passage, three paragraphs, uh, three actions, three verbs that the pastor is supposed to be doing, but are also at the same time things being done to him. Uh, we see the pastor in verses 1 to 5 being warned, but also warning, warned and warning. And then in verses 6 to 10, we see the pastor trained, but also training, trained and training. And finally, you see in verses 11 to 16, the pastor watched and watching. The congregation's watching him. He's watching over them. He's watching over himself. Warned and warning, trained and training, watched and watching. Let's start with warned and warning, verses 1 to 5. Paul starts out by saying that Timothy needs to be warned that there is false teaching going around that will lead people to turn from the faith. Paul says that the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. This doesn't mean um, in times you know, way down the road in the foggy mists of time. This is a way that the New Testament describes the period of time in between Jesus' ascension into heaven and his second coming at the end of history. All of that is the last days. All of it is the later times. And Paul says here, he's, this is the Apostle Paul speaking as the, the Spirit's spokesman. He says, The Spirit is expressly saying to you, Timothy, and through you to the church, that in these later times some people will depart from the faith. He's warning us about it before it happens so that we aren't surprised by it, so that we aren't too discouraged by it. It seems like every couple months there's some new story about some Christian celebrity, some important Christian leader who comes out and uh, either kind of says, I don't believe this stuff anymore, it's all a bunch of crazy hogwash, or they have some kind of terrible moral blowout and show that they've just been hypocrites the whole entire time. But you can see here that the New Testament does this a lot. It warns us about it. It says this is going to happen. Uh, people are going to give up on the faith. Don't become too discouraged by it. This is something that actually uh, has been prophesied ahead of time. It happened to the apostles. You can see uh, in 2 Timothy especially, Paul talking about people abandoning him, these people that he had worked with, uh, doing him a lot of harm, walking away from him. It even happens to Jesus. You have Judas Iscariot, one of the original 12 disciples, abandoning Jesus in the end. You can see here in verse 1, Paul first of all talks about uh, this false teaching, where it comes from. 
He says it's going to come from demons, demonic teaching, and they're going to be working through hypocritical liars. Uh, he says they devote themselves to the, these deceitful spirits. They devote themselves to these teachings that are actually satanic in origin. Um, and they do it as those who are insincere. You could translate that word as hypocritical. Um, they're liars. And Paul says that their consciences are seared. Um, it means that these are people who are giving in to some kind of teaching that is leading them in some ways to break God's law, and they feel totally fine about it. Their consciences are seared. Our conscience is something like our moral compass. Um, it's something God's given us as humans, as his image bearers, to distinguish between what's right and what's wrong. Uh, in sin, we all have flawed consciences. They are not totally reliable because we are sinful people. But, and this is pretty scary, that the Bible says that sometimes people's consciences can become completely dysfunctional. They can basically stop working so that they really have no sense anymore of what's right and wrong. And this is what Paul's saying. These people are so sideways, they've given in so much to sin, that they don't have, uh, that compass now is completely pointing the wrong direction. Um, you can see that um, in one sense, the first problem Paul's explaining and dealing with is this problem of relativism. People who break God's law and feel totally fine about it. Uh, they don't think they have to obey these laws. They don't think there's anything wrong with it. It shows us that we need to be careful when people come along and they say, well, this feels really good. Uh, or, you know, I've had this experience and uh, I just know deep down that this is right. It feels right to me. We need to be careful about that. And we need to be careful about how confident somebody can be about some new way of life, some uh, new pattern they've discovered, uh, some new update on what people have always thought God said or what the Bible said. We need to be careful of just going off of how confident they are or what they're saying that they feel, because somebody's conscience can go completely sideways. It can become seared. All through this whole passage, there is an emphasis on God's word. There is an emphasis on doctrine, on teaching, on the truth. You can see that in verse 3. We'll get to this in a sec, but Paul talks about uh, people who believe and know the truth. In verse 5, he talks about the things of God's creation being made holy by the word of God and by prayer. Paul says in verse 1 already that the Spirit expressly says dot, 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 dot. Today, the Spirit speaks to us most directly and most clearly through the Bible, the Old and the New Testaments. And so we have to be really careful to not just go off of what things feel like, how confident people are about them. The main question for us is what does Scripture say? What is the Spirit saying through these writings? The Bible is not uh, equally clear in all of its parts, the Westminster Confession says, but it is clear. It can be understood. It's not some foggy, mystical document that no one really knows what it says anyways. We can know what it says, and we need to strive to know what it says. The standard is God's Word, all through 1 Timothy, over and over and over again. 1 Timothy is, Timothy is to dedicate himself to teaching, and to teaching well, and to teaching clearly. So that's the source of this false teaching. You see in verse 3, the first half of verse 3, also it's content. You have hypocritical, relativistic, conscience-seared liars teaching something. Uh, what they are teaching, Paul says, is a kind of uh, harsh asceticism, extra super-spiritual discipline, extra laws on top of what God actually requires. They're adding commandments to um, God's law, even as they also, like we said, break many of the commandments. 
Paul says that they forbid marriage. They require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. So on the one hand, you often, and many of you guys have experienced this in churches uh, or Christian communities or cults or things like that, uh, you often have alongside of a kind of relativism, people who are like, well, I don't really care about what God says about this, or I feel really good about this, and so who cares what the Bible says? Alongside of that, you often have, at the same time, a very strict and harsh legalism about things that the Bible doesn't really talk about. These things are you know, very warm bedfellows. Relativism, on the one hand, legalism, on the other. They almost always come together. Uh, relativism says, I don't have to keep these certain parts of God's law. Legalism says, I'm going to add to God's law. Uh, to get him to like me and to do what I, I want. Um, you can see here that the problem in Ephesus for Timothy and for this church was mainly um, a denial of the created things of this world that God has given us to enjoy. Um, they are saying, well, you know, if you're a real Christian, if you're a super-duper spiritual Christian, you don't really have to get married. Uh, or maybe, yeah, some of us have to get married, but, you know, if you're really, really disciplined, then you won't. Um, they also say, you know, you're not going to eat certain kinds of food. Uh, this word could probably be translated as meats. They're probably some kind of vegetarian. They're saying it's unspiritual, it's evil to eat meat. Uh, and if you're really spiritual, you won't do it. Uh, and if you're too weak, then oh well, I guess you still have to eat your meat. Um, and so they are denying things that God has given us to enjoy uh, in this world that he's made for us. They are saying that they know better than God, that they shouldn't have to get married, that they shouldn't have to eat meat. Uh, marriage is something God's given to us in creation, something to be received and enjoyed with great gratitude, uh, and the same is true of all kinds of food. Um, I think you could extend this uh, by extension to all kinds of wealth and property. Uh, we take the raw things of God's creation, and we move them around, and we transform them, and we reshape them, and we turn them into things like houses and cars. Uh, these things also are a function of God's creation, things that he's given us to enjoy gratefully. Um, I think today you can see, even if we're not living in quite the same uh, situation as the church in Ephesus was, I've noticed, especially coming from California uh, and then moving away to Scotland where they don't really care about uh, different kinds of diets and foods and then coming back to Texas and realizing, wow, people really care about this stuff. Uh, I've noticed too that in the last 10 years ago, it seems like we've really heavily moralized lots of different kinds of food. We have different kinds of diets. We like to say that certain kinds of food are good or bad or morally questionable. Uh, if these kinds of uh, factors were involved in producing it, if these kinds of chemicals were involved in producing it, then it must be, you know, something is suspicious about it. It must be bad. Uh, you're not a very good Christian if you use it or if you eat it. Um, I've seen something similar, I've noticed too, uh, with Protestants in the last 10 or 15 years becoming a lot more interested in things like Lent. Uh, certain times of year where you are not supposed to be eating certain things, um, even if you're not coming out and saying, well, we're all required not to uh, eat these foods, uh, at least you're kind of saying you're a bit more spiritual, you're more moral uh, as a Christian if you're going to give up certain things at certain times of years. I'll have something positive to say about fasting in a little bit, um, but this was a big deal in the Protestant Reformation because the Roman Catholic Church had developed this very complicated calendar of when you were allowed to eat certain things, and the Reformers came along and they said, well, look, uh, this actually is not something that's right for Christians. The New Testament is very clear that all kinds of food are morally acceptable for Christians. Whether or not they will eat it is another question. Whether or not they should eat it is another question. But they at least should be able to eat any kind of food they want at any time they want. And to come along and say, you're a bad Christian if you eat certain kinds of food on these days, uh, that's actually adding to God's law. It's doing what Paul is warning about here. 
Um, I've seen this similar kind of dynamic, this kind of denial of the created uh, goodness of God's world, uh, not wanting to be, being a little too good for the things that God gives us. I've noticed it too with something that I call the poverty gospel. Uh, Many of you have heard of the prosperity gospel. Uh, If you believe enough in Jesus, then he'll make you really wealthy and healthy. Uh, There's a flip side to that that I've noticed, especially since I was in college. Lots of college students getting really wound up about it. I call it the poverty gospel. Uh, If you are extra super duper simple, if you have less stuff, uh, if you refuse to enjoy lots of things that are available to you in the modern world, then you are more spiritual. You're closer to Jesus. God cares more about you. Um, You also see this, and again, this isn't so much of an issue uh, maybe today as it was, say, 100 years ago or a couple decades ago. You've had a lot of Christians, especially in America, who said it's wrong, it's immoral, it's morally suspect to drink alcohol. Uh, This is not something that Christians should be using. Um, I think this is, again, a similar kind of extra spiritual legalism adding to God's law. The Bible says that God has given us alcohol to make us happy, to make us enjoy things. Um, Again, it can be abused, of course, and we'll talk about abusing God's creation. But this always shows up all through the church's history, all over the place. People are always looking for ways to add to God's law, to add to things, uh, to make us feel like we're super duper spiritual, like God accepts us more, uh, becoming questionable about these certain things. I heard a sermon last summer, not in Austin, not at a PCA church, don't worry. I heard a sermon last summer uh, where the, the pastor took a verse in Ecclesiastes really in a bizarre direction. Uh, It wasn't what it was talking about, but he took it into this direction, talking about Christians and their attitude towards oppression and towards poverty, which is something we should talk about and something we should be concerned about. The Bible has a lot to say about that. But his application point from that was that, and I was shocked when he said this, he said that Christians should not buy any items of clothing that cost less than $4. Because if it's less than $4, that means that oppression and slavery has been involved, and therefore it is morally evil to do it. Besides betraying a complete ignorance of economics and what prices mean and what they tell us, I think he was completely adding to God's law, something that's not there. He was saying we should reject something in God's creation uh, that's supposed to be received with thanksgiving. This is something we can always be doing a little bit too much of. Um, Paul says that this is something that Timothy always needs to be working at putting in front of the church. He says in verse 6, put these things before the brothers and you'll be a good pastor. This is something you always have to be warning them about. There's always a danger of adding to God's law. There's always a danger of creating sins out of things that aren't really sins. Um, Even beyond rejecting the things of this world, being too spiritual for them, we can do this in lots of other ways. We can make uh, sin issues out of how you educate your kids. We say, well, this is the only one spiritual way to raise your kids, and if you don't, you're a bad Christian, or you're at least suspect. We can do it with politics. We can say, well, you have to vote for X, Y, or Z politician, or else you're a morally suspect Christian. We do it with how we raise our children, what we expect from them. We think our kids have to turn out to be really successful, or really polite, uh, or really warm and personable. Otherwise, I'm a bad mom. I'm a terrible person. We can do this. We can say, if you belong to a certain race, if you belong to a certain gender, if you belong to a certain class, you are therefore morally suspect. You are sinful more than everybody else. We can do this even with things uh, like medications. Um, A lot of Christians think that it's maybe not very spiritual if you take medication for something like depression, and that if you were a real Christian, you wouldn't have to take it. These are all ways of adding to God's law and saying we're too spiritual for these things. We know better than God, and we can help him out. So that's the, uh, the false teaching. It comes from demons speaking through hypocritical liars who, on the one hand, uh, like to break God's law in certain areas, even as they add to God's law in other areas. 
But look at the end of verse 3 into verse 5 where Paul talks about its antidote. He says the antidote is gratitude. The antidote is gratitude by God's word and prayer. He says that these foods, marriage, etc., the things we talked about, these are things that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. He says everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. Um, two times, maybe three times in three verses, uh, depending on what Paul means by this word prayer at the end, Paul talks about thanksgiving, praying with thanksgiving, saying to God, thank you for giving this to me. This is from you. You are a generous father. I receive it and I use it and I give it in service to you. The antidote to legalism, the antidote to relativism, the antidote to hedonism and consumerism, all of it, the antidote is gratitude towards God prayerful reception of the things God gives us. Paul is going to have a lot more to say in chapter 6 about the danger of idolizing money, about the danger of idolizing our stuff and not being generous with it. But we need to see here already that this is the key to enjoying God's gifts, enjoying our stuff with moderation in a healthy way, with self-control. Seeing that it's from God enjoying it as something from God, and therefore, as we recognize that these are things from God, we want to use them in a way that honors Him and pleases Him. We want to be generous with them because we know that it's ultimately His, that He's giving them to us. Uh, We don't eat way too much, and we don't eat lots of terrible things that are bad for us because we receive them from God as His gifts. We say, this is God's gift meant to sustain me and strengthen me so that I can help the people around me. Uh, We don't become obsessed with our money and our jobs and our things, and our cars, and our houses, because we recognize that they're just gifts from God, and we look to be kind and generous with them. The antidote to all of these things is to recognize God's generosity and to enjoy them as his gifts. So that's the pastor warned and warning, verses 1 to 5. Look at verses 6 to 10. Now we have the pastor trained and training. Here's uh, point two of Coach Paul's uh, halftime encouragements to player Timothy. Verse 6, he says, if you put these things before the brother, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. The main aim of the pastor, as with everybody else for whom the pastor is supposed to be a model, the main aim of all of our lives is to be a good servant of Jesus. Paul does not say, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be really popular. You will be really successful you will have a megachurch, a pastoral helicopter. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Remember that uh, parable that Jesus tells about the uh, three servants with their talents? And uh, the first two, they have, complete, they have different amounts of talents at the beginning and they produce different amounts of talents uh, through their work. But Jesus says the same wonderful thing to them. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. This is what our lives are all about as Christians here in this world, is serving Jesus. We always have to be asking ourselves, how can I please Jesus in this? And sometimes that means displeasing the people around you. Sometimes that means going without things and pleasures and stuff and possessions that you might otherwise be able to. 
But notice, too, how Timothy does this. Timothy is a good servant of Jesus, putting these things forward to the brothers and the sisters, insofar as he has been and he is being nourished by God's word. Paul says, you are being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. We know from um, 2 Timothy that he grew up uh, knowing about God, knowing his word. Uh, His mother and his grandmother faithfully taught him uh, and faithfully led him to the Lord. And Paul says that's bearing fruit in your life, and it's continuing to bear fruit in your life. We need to be nourished and raised up by God's word. We need to be feeding ourselves with it. That's part of what we're doing right now. I'm feeding you. You're being fed. You're to go home and go out to lunch and continue to reflect on it. I'm fed as I prepare these sermons. I grow as I do it and as I teach it. So that's, as Timothy does this, and as he's nourished by it, Paul says, therefore... You should not be sidetracked in verse 7. Don't be sidetracked with these irreverent, silly myths. Don't get bogged down. Don't get distracted by empty stories, empty ideologies that aren't really going to say anything or mean anything, things that are just adding to the Bible but don't really get you anywhere. Paul says, instead of that, Timothy, verse 7, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. I think this is the key at the heart of the whole chapter. Paul says, Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Uh, Paul apparently liked sports a lot more than I do. He's often using athletic imagery all through his letters. And so again, this is all the language of uh, the arena. Uh, Train yourself is the the language that they would use of guys who would go out and exercise uh, and work out Um, they made a word from it called the gymnasium, which was the place where you would go and you would work out and you would train and you would do sports. And so Paul takes that language and he says, do that, train yourself, Uh, work out for godliness. And then Paul says, you know, he keeps going with the sports imagery. He says the bodily training, the athletic training, the sports training, he says, yeah, that's of some value, but godliness is of value in every way. Not only because it affects your life now, which Paul's going to get into more as the letter goes on, it affects the way you approach your money, it affects the way you approach your parents, it affects the way you approach uh, difficult issues in the workplace, it affects the way you approach your church, not only because it changes the way you live now, but especially because of how it prepares you for the eternal life of seeing God forever and ever. We live in a city uh, that heavily, heavily emphasizes bodily training. Uh, Lots of people are into being really physically fit, uh, doing sports, paddle boarding, running, uh, cycling, all these things. Uh, Think about not only how Austin is really into physical fitness, into eating right, good diets, uh, not having toxins in your body, all these things. Think about even how much COVID the last year and a half has shown about how much our world cares about the physical health of the body. Think of all the things that we have sacrificed, all the things that people have been willing to give up, the discipline, the, the, um, the, the, the immediate and radical changes that people have made to their lives in the last year and a half because of their concern for physical health, their concern for physical safety. Paul says it's of some value. Physical fitness, medical care, medical treatment, those are good things. Those should be important in our lives. But they are not at all ultimate things. It's of some value. How much energy, how much effort, 
How much sacrifice are we dedicating towards godliness? A lot of people have given up a lot of things to not die in the last year and a half. Not many people giving up a tenth of that to live for God and to obey Him, to live in this posture of piety and devotion towards Him. Paul says, yeah, physical training, that's, that's important. Paul's going to give this, um, I don't know how to explain it yet. I'll see when I get there. In the next chapter, he's going to give this kind of a bit of a screwball, point, a bit of advice to Timothy. He says, hey, uh, drink some wine to help you with your stomach problems. It's in the middle of a paragraph. I have no idea why he says it where he does. The Bible does care about our physical lives. It has a lot to do with it. But we need to be training ourselves, most of all, for godliness. Uh, the way that we do that, the way that we train ourselves, and the way that we work ourselves out to become more godly, more holy, uh, is through what we call the ordinary means of grace. Sometimes we call these things spiritual disciplines. Uh, mainly we do that through God's Word. We do it through prayer. We do it with sacraments, reflecting on our baptisms, feeding on the Lord's body and blood at the table. It's not only something that we do individually, uh, although we should and we do, it's also something that we do corporately. You can't really grow seriously as a Christian unless you are in a bodily way involved with other people. Um, and it's not non-bodily. It's not non-bodily. It's not something that's purely mental. It's not something that's purely spiritual, so to speak. Things like fasting can really help us with this. Fasting is basically a means to an end. It's a way to help you with your prayer life. You stop eating food uh, in order to train yourself and discipline yourself to focus more on God. Um, our diet, our sleep, our exercise, these are all important elements of living for God, of disciplining ourselves, of how to be more attuned to Him, more oriented toward Him, obeying Him more seriously in our lives. Just like um, with uh, athletic exercise, even I know this, uh, you know, we have different muscles, and uh, you know, you maybe go do some new sport or some new exercise, and you realize, whoa, I'm really weak over here. I never knew that I was so weak over here. Uh, it's the same thing with spiritual training, spiritual disciplines. Um, some of us are really good at maybe one or two things. Well, like, I know how to read the Bible. I've been doing it my whole life. I do it 20 minutes every single day. I'm really good at it. I can tell you with my eyes closed what every single chapter means. That's great. Uh, good for you. But what about prayer? Uh, what about generosity? What about uh, coming to church and worshiping earnestly and sincerely? Uh, what about really coming to the Lord's table in a way that behooves you so that you come away with it, away from it, in a way where you are deeply fed, in a way that you are uh, deeply grateful, deeply moved by what the Lord has done for you at the table. We need to be working out all these muscles. It takes a lot of work. It doesn't just happen by itself. I, more than anybody else on the planet, wish that you could just get physically healthy by not having to do any actual exercise, any actual discipline. But it's the same thing with training for godliness. You have to work at it, and you have to start somewhere. Don't be too ashamed. Don't be too discouraged to do nothing. Start little and just go from there. Why should we do all this? Paul says in verse 9, it's eminently important. This is the third of three times that Paul says something like this. He says this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Remember the first time he said this was when he said that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. The second time he said it was when he said, if you want to be an elder, you desire a noble task. The third time he says, it's really important to understand. It's really important to believe and to take it seriously that godliness is of value in every way. Because God knows that we don't tend to believe this. Our tendency is to think, it's not really that valuable. Physical training, that's really valuable. 
getting rich. That's really valuable. Godliness, pfft, I don't know, whatever. God is like an app running in the background of our lives. We don't really care about God. And so Paul grabs us by the shoulders. He grabs Timothy by the shoulders, and he shakes us. And he says, this is a trustworthy saying. You must fully accept it. We must strive to really believe and ask for God's help so that we know that godliness is of value in every way. This is why it, uh, Paul and Timothy and all of us are justified in toiling and striving in all kinds of ministry and service to other people in whatever callings God's placed upon you, whether it's as a mom, whether it's uh, as a software engineer, whether it's as a pastor. Paul says, look at it, Verse 10, to this end we toil and strive. This is again the language of the athletic arena. Uh, one of these words is the word that you use for wrestling and battling somebody. Because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is the posture, living for God, living in a godly way, living in a way that is pious, that is devoted to him. That is the posture of somebody who hopes in God. It is the posture of somebody who knows that God is the living God, not the dead God. That God is the one who generously gives and sustains our lives, not only now, but into eternity. And so therefore, it's worth all the sacrifice. It's worth all the discipline. Far more than bodily strength, far more than bodily health, as important as that is for some things. So that's the pastor trained and training. And then we have the pastor watched and watching, verses 11 to 16. Once again, in case Timothy's not paying attention, Coach Paul says to him, command and teach these things. Don't forget what I'm saying to you. This is really important. He says in verse 12, don't let your youth, Timothy's probably in his 30s when Paul's writing this, don't let your youth become a hindrance to your ministry. He says, don't let anyone despise you just because you're young. Uh, sometimes there's good reasons to despise people because they're young. They don't know very much. They're not very experienced. Um, but especially in our culture, um, you know, we need to see that the reason that Timothy shouldn't be despised for his youth is not just because he's young and young people are cool, um, but, Paul says, because you're setting a good example. He says the reason that they're not going to despise you because you're young is because in every area of your life, they're going to see a godly man. He says, in the way you talk, in the way you live, in the way you love other people, in your confidence in God and in his word, in the purity of your life, your willingness to flee from sin, Paul says, be an example to the church. It's like we said last week, the leaders of the church that you choose for yourselves are not super-duper spiritual, uh, extra-elite Christians. They're just good examples of what it means to be a Christian. Choose men who are good examples of it and who will help you do it. Paul says, verse 13, here's what you should be focusing on. Until I come, until I can get back there in person and help you out with this struggling church, he says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. These are really the main elements of the pastor's job. My job um, at the heart of the church's mission is reading God's Word, encouraging you with God's Word, teaching you God's Word. I don't have anything to say in and of myself that is of any importance to you. Uh, the only thing that I have to say to you that you should at all care about is whatever the Bible says as it applies to our lives today. This is the main thing. 
The church is not about a social club. It's not about programs. It's not about a certain aesthetic vibe. It's not about a certain experience. It's not about being amused. It's not about getting a certain high on Jesus. At the end of the day, it's kind of boring. It is to teach you and train you and encourage you with God's word because God's word is sufficient to train us for godliness until Jesus comes back. That's what we come here every week for. That's why the Bible plays such a prominent role in our worship services and in the life of our church. Paul says to Timothy, he warns him, he says, I want you to be particularly careful that you don't neglect and ignore the gift that God's given you. Don't go on cruise control. It's the same for all of us. The New Testament says that all Christians have been gifted by the Spirit to serve in the church, to serve their communities. And in what Paul says to Timothy, he says to all of us today, don't go on cruise control. Don't neglect the gifts that God's given you. Don't just kick back and be a consumer and expect everybody to do everything for you. God's gifted you. If you're a Christian, you have a very important role to play in the life of God's church and in the lives of the people around you. Paul says to Timothy in verse 15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Literally, he says, be in them so that all may see your progress. Not everybody is going to be gifted in the same ways. Some pastors are going to be extraordinarily gifted at teaching and exhortation. Uh, Some of us are going to be extraordinarily gifted at evangelism or generosity or administration or things like that. The important thing here, I love this verse, the important thing is that you keep growing. Not however gifted you are, not however much Joe Schmo over here is able to do. The important thing is that you grow. Paul says, do these things, be in them, live in them, so that people will see your progress. Pastors, Christians should not be on cruise control. People should be able to see over a period of time somebody growing. A pastor generally should be getting better and better and better at teaching the Bible. Finally, Paul says in verse 16, be particularly attentive to your own soul and to the quality of your teaching. This is a sobering verse. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's an amazing thing. You hear what Paul's saying? He's saying right now, as I am teaching you God's word, you are being saved. I am being saved. Keep a close watch on yourself. He says, Timothy, do not let yourself slip. There's a lot of pastors who have terrible moral blowouts in ministry because they stop keeping watch on themselves. They're not accountable to anybody. Nobody knows what's going on. They become addicted to porn or drugs or whatever, or they're power maniacs. They do not keep a close attention on themselves. Paul also says, keep a close watch on your teaching. Don't let it get sideways. Don't let it slip. Don't just start saying things that people want to hear. Or don't just ride your hobby horses about topics that you find particularly interesting. Salvation is at stake. This is how God saves people. Jesus came to save sinners. That was the first trustworthy saying. Chapter 1, verse 15. And the way that he does that, the way that Jesus comes into the world to save sinners is through the faithful teaching and hearing of his word. Because his word trains us, it nourishes us for godliness. Another faithful saying, godliness is a value in every way. And so let's both you and me, in the face of discouragement and distraction, let's train ourselves for godliness. Let's pay attention to ourselves. Let's pay attention to the word. 
Because the living God, like we heard last week, the living God is living among us. He's at work in us. And so in this world of death and decline, where else should we put our hope but in Him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that sustains us to eternal life. Thank you for providing for all of our needs. Help us, help me as a pastor, help us as a church to faithfully fulfill uh, the callings you've placed on our lives and on our ministry. Help us to live lives of godliness, knowing that it's a value in every way. Keep us from becoming distracted with other things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.